Welcome to Three Thoughts On. This is Rafael Andrade. Today, my guest is Dr. David Fagenbaum. David is a co-founder and president of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. He's also the founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, CSTL, associate director of patient impact for the Penn Orphan Disease Center, and associate professor of medicine in translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. David's story is truly fascinating. While in medical school in 2010, David became critically ill of idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, IMCD. He had his last rites read and had four deadly IMCD relapses. During this time, David decided to find a way to overcome his disease. He identified a treatment via a medication that was FDA approved for an entirely different ailment and realized this could help him with his disease. As a result of that, David is in his longest remission ever. His journey is described in his best-selling book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David currently leads over 20 translational research studies and he has also identified and or advanced 16 other treatment approaches for IMCD, COVID-19, and cancer. In 2022, David co-founded EveryCure.org to unlock the full potential of every drug to treat every disease possible. David's story is not only inspiring, but it is also a testament of the amazing things that are possible when science and human resolve are put to work in a collaborative environment for the benefit of mankind. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with David, and I know you will too. And now, Dr. David Fagenbaum. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. David Fagenbaum. David, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on today. Thank you for making the time for me. I know you're busy doing amazing things that I cannot wait for you to share with our audience. But first, I'd like for you to, you can take a couple of minutes and give us a little bit of a background on, on who you are and what you do. And then we can get into the meat of some of the work that you're doing that hopefully will be benefiting millions and millions of people worldwide. Sure. So um, I am a physician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. I run a center here focused on inflammatory diseases, and we work to try to repurpose drugs to treat these diseases. And uh, I first got into this world when I myself became a, a sick patient with one of these horrible inflammatory diseases when I was a medical student. And I ended up discovering a drug that could be repurposed uh, to save my life, a drug that wasn't made for my disease, but we figured out it could be repurposed. And uh, so that has led me to launch the center at Penn, but also um, to launch an organization called the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network, focused on Castleman's. And finally, about a year and a half ago, to launch a whole other nonprofit organization called Every Cure, which is on a mission to unlock every possible use for every FDA-approved drug, because we don't believe patients should suffer if there's a treatment that could potentially help them. Well, that's <laughs> that's a very quick summary of a very... <laughs> long career and life, you know, that you've been, at least from what I know. So just for the audience, I met David here two years ago at uh, in Lake Nona, the Impact Forum. And I, I have to say, 
for those people who don't know what the Impact Forum is, is an event that we do here in Lake Nona that is packed with amazing people that are doing amazing things all over the world. And your talk was by far the best for me that year. And my father is a physician. You know, he's retired now. So I'm very close to my heart, all things that are about good medicine and to hear your story and how you survived and how you kept fighting and now how you're doing all this work. It's inspiring. So I, I thank you for that. I want to I wanna get into a little bit of this topic of inflammatory diseases because I'm not a doctor. I'm just a, I'm student, a student of science. I'm an engineer by mm-hmm. school. Uh, but given my background, my mother was a professor of, of uh, a university professor and a lawyer, and my dad was is uh, a retired physician. I've been very close to science and, and science being put to good use, right? And one thing that I'm noticing is is more and more this onset of things that are derived from inflammation. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of context there when we talk about inflammatory diseases? What are we talking about here and why should people care? Sure. So um, we're talking about diseases where the immune system is um, involved in a way that it shouldn't be. So, you know, you need your immune system and you need inflammation for a few purposes. One of those purposes is to fight off infections. So if you were to get COVID or the flu, you better have your immune system in place. And inflammation is one of the ways that your immune system fights that thing off by producing inflammation, by releasing cytokines. That helps to kill the virus. It helps to, to, to put the um, bacteria at bay. Um, and then it's supposed to go back into a watch and wait mode. So that's one of the reasons why you have an immune system. Another is to surveil against cancer. So if you're if a cell in your body becomes cancerous, if it transforms into cancer, your immune system needs to, to notice that cell and then generate an inflammatory response, so inflammation, to kill that cancer cell, and then it go back into surveillance mode. So those are really the two main roles of your immune system. But for some reason, um, and in many cases, there's, it's multifactorial, your immune system may get involved in other ways that it's not supposed to be, and it may produce inflammation when it's not needed, when that inflammation isn't helpful for killing the virus. It's not helpful for killing cancer. It's just causing um, problems. And so inflammatory diseases are when you have more inflammation than, um, than is helpful for your, whatever you're dealing with, and, and it's what we call pathological inflammation. And so that's where generally you need to have some sort of intervention. You need to quell the inflammation with a drug, or you need to change some sort of lifestyle so that way you can get the inflammation under control. And just for completeness here for the audience, I think if you ask the average person to define inflammation, they associate it with a type of inflammation that takes place as a result of a physical injury. You know, you, you, you twist your ankle mm-hmm. and your body immediately swells up. Uh, that is entirely different than what we're talking about here. You want to expand that on, on that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. It's entirely different. And, and at the same time, the cells that cause the inflammation when you hurt your ankle, um, it's many of the same cells that cause inflammation throughout your body for a variety of reasons. Um, but to your point, very, very different. So um, in the same way that your ankle swells up um, because you twist your ankle, it gets red and hot to the touch. Um, that's because there are a number of what are called cytokines or prostaglandins that are produced. That's going to help to heal the area, um, increase blood flow. That's why it gets swollen. Um, well, when you have an inflammatory response in any part of your body, if it's your lungs because you have COVID, 
or if it's um, your abdomen because um, you've just gotten um, a stomach virus, um, you're going to get the same sort of inflammatory response. You're going to get some swelling in the area. It might become hot um, because uh, there's increased blood flow. Um, and, And so inflammation is sort of the same all over the body, but the reason behind it, again, sometimes it can be really good. Like when you hurt your ankle, that inflammation is really good. It's going to help you to heal your, your, your ankle injury much more quickly than if you didn't have the swollen inflammatory ankle. But sometimes you get a swollen ankle because of you have rheumatoid arthritis and that's not for any good reason. You know, that swelling is not good. And so like sort of everything that your body does, there's usually a good use for just about everything your body does, but sometimes um, it, uh, it, sometimes that exact same thing that in some cases could be good could actually be bad in different scenarios. And also for how long, right? Because yeah. it's just kind of analogous to cortisol levels going up, you know, that in itself, just by itself as a single event is not necessarily yeah. a bad thing. But if they stay up for extended periods of time, yes. then that becomes or could become a serious problem. So when it comes to inflammatory diseases like the ones that you suffered from, how does that manifest in the body? And I know that, that you know, we're still learning a lot about these things, which is why you're doing the work that you do. But you know, for the average person that's out there, you know, working nine to five or maybe working two jobs or just trying to, to make it, you know, what kind of things can you share with the audience that will help people identify if some of these things are happening already within themselves and they just don't know? Yeah, it's a great question. So the kinds of diseases that I study are the ones that are very overt inflammation. So someone ends up in the intensive care unit because their liver and their kidneys and their bone marrow are shutting down. Um, And it may be for an unknown cause like occurs in Castleman disease, or it may be because they have sepsis because of a bacterial infection in their blood. So I study the really overt causes of hyperinflammation where it's just like your whole body is in shock because of this inflammatory response. But to your point, there's sort of all levels of inflammation. And so, you know, there's points where you're not in the ICU because your organs are shutting down, but there's sort of low-grade chronic chronic inflammation um, that, that may be at play. Maybe you're more fatigued than usual. Maybe um, uh, you're just feeling achy and unwell. Um, and, you know, inflammatory diseases are being diagnosed more and more frequently than ever before. Um, and so, um you know, if you're having symptoms, uh, you know, you're more tired than usual, you have some joint pain, um, you feel sort of what we call malaise or you just feel unwell, those are the kinds of things that it's good to talk to your doctor about. But again, um, it's not, it's probably not one of the diseases that I study because the diseases I study, um, you know that you've got the problem because, you know, all of your organs are shutting down. So in your case, you know, there was a point in your life, you know, you were a student, you know, you were a football player. For all accounts and purposes, everything was going great, and then it wasn't. For you, in your case, with your experience, was that a abrupt change from being well to not being well? Or looking back, could you identify that it was probably more of a gradual thing that maybe went unnoticed for a while until it wasn't ignorable anymore? It's a great question. As you said, I was a third-year med student when I got sick, so I was sort of pinnacle of health. I'd played college football. I um, continued to exercise and eat really well and, and was very, very, very healthy. Um, and uh, what seems to be very abruptly became very ill. In hindsight, um, I was probably drinking more cups of coffee and more Red Bulls than I probably ever had in the weeks leading up to it. So I probably was having some 
greater fatigue than usual. But as a medical student, we don't sleep very much in medical school. We're sort of always getting pushed um, to our limits. And so at the time, I didn't really think too much of how tired I was. But yeah, it got to a point where it really exploded. And I went from this healthy medical student, literally had just delivered my first child into the world because I was on an OBGYN rotation, to being in the ICU with all of my organs shutting down in the exact same hospital, um, having a priest reading my last rites to me, my doctors telling me that I wasn't going to survive and having to hug my family goodbye in a, in a matter of weeks, right? From you know, total health, delivering children into the world to, to literally you know, dying in the ICU. And so it was very abrupt for me. Um, and of course, I never would have dreamed that over 13 years later, I'd be sitting here talking to you um, um, in a good state of health and uh, talking about how we've gone from not just identifying a drug that could save my life, but actually creating a system and identifying many more drugs um, to save other patients' lives. So I want to zoom out on that for a moment there. So let me postulate something to you and then you tell me if I'm off in left field or if there's some some level of of certainty or truth to what I'm saying, but there seems to be this movement these days. Just like this podcast, you know, there's tens of thousands more, most of them with people far more qualified than me. As you <laughs> no have the, yeah, you have the Hubermans, you have, you know, Dr. Hyman, you have everybody doing all kinds of wonderful work, right? And there seems to be this movement that if you're uh, healthy, if you exercise, if you do, there's like the basic fundamentals, right? If you're eating well, meaning, you know, nothing... Nothing that is, you know, overtly dangerous for the body. If, if you're moving every day, if you're meditating and, and maintaining the stress levels, you know, below where they should be, that the body becomes an ecosystem that is conducive to healing. And it is now in a position where it can tackle most of anything that comes after it, right? But yet, Every once in a while, you hear an example like you. You, you took care of yourself. You're a yeah. you know, college athlete. I'm assuming, yeah. please correct me if I don't know history in your family of any kind of problems. And yet, you go from that. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that cannot be attributed to the stress of med school, right? Because, no. you know. A lot of people go to med school and don't get it, sick like it, that. Yeah. It, exactly. So you go, and this is so quickly, right? So, so. What is at play here, you know, because and, and I'm sure I'm, I know I'm asking a very difficult question that probably there isn't an answer to. But for those of us who have made significant changes, I've made significant changes in my life in the past 10, 15 years because personally, I've seen loved ones. Like I lost my mother, you know, less than a year ago mm -hmm. to cancer. Right. So and I've seen other relatives and you see friends, you know, and family, you know, go and. I got it in my head that, you know, I I have to do everything I can to minimize the risk of falling ill in some way, form, or yes. fashion, right? And I do see that I am stronger than I've ever been. I'm healthier than I've ever been. But then again, tomorrow can be different. Something may be yeah. at work completely unbeknownst to me, completely unnoticeable. And then it could be, again, like you, ICU, last rites, yep. and then who knows, right? So can, can we... Kind of, I know that that's not a question. It's more of a statement there. But no, is there some truth there? And then how how should we observe all of that in a holistic or healthy way, so that we're not terrorized by the thought that it doesn't matter what I do, I may just be having something right now that's going to kill me tomorrow. <laughs> Totally. These are all the right questions um, to be asking. I mean, from, from my perspective, I think that doing all the things you described are absolutely the right thing to do. 
eating the right way, exercising the right way, reducing um, uh, behaviors that could be, that could increase your risk of disease are the things that we should all do. And, um, but the important thing to remember is that the term risk. And so doing all those things, reduce your risk of, of, of illness, reduce your risk of disease, reduce your risk of harm, harmful things happening, um, but they don't eliminate, um, the risk of these things. Right. And so, um, you know, there is no way to completely bulletproof, um, your health. And the reason for that is that there are, subtle differences in our DNA um, from one person to another that strongly increase our risk of one thing over another. So, so that one person who maybe does everything to lower their risk, they maybe already had a 300-fold increased risk of that thing. So even though they did all the right things and they reduced their risk maybe 100-fold, they started out with a 300-fold increased risk just because of a subtle change in their DNA or maybe because of some exposure that they had at some point in their life. And so I think the important thing to do is to know that we should always be lowering our risk, eating well, exercising, you know, again, uh, improving um, lifestyle choices that lower risk, but we also have to remember that there um, that it's still risk, which means there's still a chance that those things happen, um, and that's why it's important um, you know to seek out the medical care that you can if and when those things do happen, and it's why we're working so hard with this new initiative I mentioned called Every Cure to make sure that every drug that's on the pharmacy shelf for one disease that we also understand all the other diseases that could potentially benefit from that drug. So that if you do have one of those diseases happen to you, despite all the work you did to lower your risk, that we make sure that there's a drug that can be given to you right away. Um, so that way you can benefit from it. Well, that's great. Well, let, let's, let's zoom into that, that, that every cure uh, initiative this is relatively new, right? It's uh, right. 2022, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but the understanding that I have is is that through your journey and through your work, you are basically looking for ways of taking drugs that maybe are generic, that have been FDA approved for A, B, and C, but through some sort of correlational analysis, artificial intelligence, machine learning type of models that you can find out that maybe they will work for X, Y, and Z. Uh, am I oversimplifying this? And if, if not, can you please uh, expand on it? You were you said it perfectly. And the only thing that I would add to it is that, um, yeah, we're looking at all 3,000 FDA-approved drugs, and we want to figure out what other diseases could those 3,000 drugs treat other than the about 3,000 diseases that they currently treat. Um, the only thing I would add is that um, – Yes, we're discovering new uses for them, but we're also just uncovering new uses that someone else has already discovered. And so it's sort of hard to imagine this, but there are drugs that are on the pharmacy shelf at CVS where a brilliant group of researchers has already discovered that that drug could be useful in another disease area. Another disease could benefit from that drug, but because the drug is generic and therefore not profitable, so once a drug becomes generic, generic manufacturers can make it for pennies a pill. Because it's no longer profitable, no one will do the work to prove that that drug works in that new disease and then also make sure that it's available for patients with that disease because you can't make any money off of a, a generic drug. And so there are literal amazing examples like a drug called arginine 
very inexpensive. It's actually an amino acid. And the role that it plays in sickle cell disease, a devastating condition that people suffer from, cheap, inexpensive nutraceutical could be life-saving for deadly, horrible condition. But because the economics don't add up, no one's doing the work to, to develop arginine for sickle cell. All right, I should take that back. No one has been doing the work to develop an oral version of arginine for sickle cell disease. There is some work to do an IV version of it. So the idea here is let's use the world's knowledge to look for every one of those connections. All of those connections between things like arginine and sickle cell disease, or in my case, between serolimus and Castleman disease, or one of my favorite examples of repurposing is Viagra. We all know it's uh, current intended use. But what most people don't realize is that it wasn't initially intended for its current use. It was intended uh, to treat a heart condition, and it was a side effect. Um, erectile dis- uh, or, you know, uh, the reversal of erectile dysfunction was, was a side effect that was noticed. But what people also don't realize is that it is also used as a life-saving drug for a pediatric lung disease. So Viagra is literally saving lives of children that wouldn't typically have lived to even be a teenager. Now they can live full lives on Viagra. And, and, And that's because it's the same drug working in the exact same way, but it opens up blood vessels in the lungs for this horrible lung disease where the blood vessels were constricted. And so, um, these sorts of connections that have already been made through the billions and even trillions of dollars of medical research that have been done over the years, we're utilizing artificial intelligence to, to identify the most promising connections that already exist and to your point to discover new connections between drugs and diseases that maybe um, make sense based on how the drug works, how the disease works, um, but maybe humankind hasn't yet made that discovery. And so it's about looking at all drugs, all diseases, and then picking out the ones that look most promising and actually doing the work to prove that that drug actually works in that disease and to make sure the patients with that disease will actually benefit from that drug and it won't just sit on the pharmacy shelf and patients won't suffer um, you know, while it's there. So what will be the process that, that we could expect someday that we will go through in order to, for people with different kinds of diseases to benefit? So let's just say that an example that, you know, you, through your work, you identify 10 medications that are currently in generic form that now through the work that your organization and the people that you're working with have done has identified to take care of a whole number of different things. What can we expect to be the process that lead patient X to first of all, find that out and then be able to get a prescription for that so that then they can benefit from that? Yeah, so we, um, it's a great question. So we actually go and work directly with physicians around the world to raise awareness about, um, let's say, arginine for sickle cell disease is something that we push all the way forward and we do a definitive trial and prove that it works. We would work with doctors directly and say, you know, consider using this drug, um, arginine for sickle cell disease. We would educate physicians, educate patients, uh, make sure that it's part of guidelines for how do you treat sickle cell disease. Really think about it as though we're a drug company. We're a nonprofit organization, but um, we want to make sure that life-saving medications make it to patients and that no patient suffers when there's a cure on the pharmacy shelf. And so, so we'll work to proactively get it, um, uh, get the information out there, but also um, would love for any and every patient to go to our website at everycure.org. Uh, We're going to be providing all of this information in a central place within about 12 to 18 months. Any patient can come to our website at everycure.org and look for any disease that they could ever think of and get a rank-ordered list of every FDA-approved drug and how likely every drug is to be a treatment for your disease. So it's not just, okay, I have ALS. 
there are three approved drugs for ALS. So I go to my doctor. My doctor tells me about the three drugs that are approved. Well, they come to the Every Cure website. They see the three approved drugs. They're going to be at the top of the list. But then they're going to see a rank order list for the next 2,997 FDA-approved drugs and the likelihood that any one of those might help. And now a lot of them are going to have 0.0 scores because there's no data to suggest that a antifungal drug is going to be useful for ALS, right? But there are also going to be drugs that don't have a 0.00 where there's some evidence that suggests that it might be useful. And we'll use that as a call to action for researchers to say, hey, let's look at number four on the list. This could potentially be the right drug for a patient with ALS. Let's look at number four, number five, number six. Um, and so, so that's what we're working towards. And hopefully you as a patient will, um, you know, that'll, you know, information will get to you or your doctor. But if not, you can come to the website and learn. And, you know, the thing that we're really fighting against is that the drug that saved my life, serolimus, it had been around for decades. It was approved for kidney transplantation and for a rare lung disease. But it had never been used before for Castleman. So decades went by and people with my disease were dying from Castleman disease, despite the fact that this drug was on the pharmacy shelf for Castle, or sorry, it wasn't for Castleman, it was on the pharmacy shelf for another condition. But no one had done the work to connect serolimus to Castleman disease. We made the connection, I'm alive, many other patients around the world are alive. Unfortunately, it doesn't help all patients with my disease, and that's why we continue to push forward our research. But we want to avoid that from ever happening for Castleman's, and we want to prevent that from happening for any other disease. We don't think any patient should suffer from a disease when there's a treatment that's sitting at the neighborhood pharmacy that the world just hasn't yet made the connections between. Let me ask you, are you finding through your work that age makes a difference? You know, in other words, you as a med student in the prime of your, you know, your health, you get sick and, and then through the process of finding this one drug, you, you end up, you know, recovering and you're healthier than, than, yeah. than most people I know. What about the people that they're 60, 65, 70? Are you seeing a causality correlation between the possibility of these drugs helping someone as a function of how old they are when they find out they're sick or is it pretty much too early to tell it's a great question so there's a lot of data to suggest that there are a lot of factors at play so one factor to play is how old is the person in their in their um you know, in, in their lifetime. So how far along on the age span are they? Another is how far along in the disease span are they? So is it newly diagnosed? Has it not yet been diagnosed? Is it 10 years of the diagnosis? Regardless of how old you are, just how far are you in the, in the span of the disease? Um, there are other factors like, you know, what's your diet like? There are other factors, you know, do you smoke? Are you exercising? What's your gut microbiome look like? And sort of all of what's your genetic sequence, right? I mean, there, there's, there's all these factors that come together that contribute to whether that drug is really going to make a difference for you. So our work and, and our task is to make sure that we find the drugs that are most likely to be helpful because we can't change what your genetic sequence is. We can't change, um, you know, what your lifestyle is, right? Um, but what we can do is we can find the drugs most likely to help your disease. And then hopefully, you know, you're at the right time in your lifespan, you're at the right time in your disease span, you're eating well, you're exercising, you're not smoking, um, and you've got the right genetic sequence. So that way you're most likely to benefit from this drug. But for us, it's about matching the drugs to the diseases that they're most likely to help. 
And I'd like to to add to that and see, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the average person, when they look at the word cure, they think of, I took something, I went through a process, and now I'm done and I'm well. But that's not necessarily the case, yeah. right? I mean, the way that I understand it, you know, a cure, and, and I would love for you to expand on, in, in your case, are you healthy because you found this drug, you took it and you were done, or are you healthy because now you have a drug you could take forever? To keep you healthy, right? So those are two entirely different things. It's a great question. And, and the true definition of cure is that um, you never have to take the medicine again. A, a true cure, you know, you took something, it fixed your problem. And, you know, it's like, you know, you were cured with an antibiotic, right? You know, you had this infection, it wouldn't go away, took an antibiotic, and you never take the antibiotic again, but it never comes back because you've cured yourself of it. Um, I, I don't set that as the goal um, for most diseases because, as you know, for most diseases, there are no examples where a drug has been able to turn something around and then you don't have to take it anymore and the disease stays away. What I shoot for is what I like to call a functional cure, um, which means that you are fully functional. Your disease is completely in remission, but you continue to take the medication or you take it at some frequency. Maybe it's every day, maybe it's every month, maybe it's every year, but the, you likely still have to continue to make the medication because the reason that you're functionally cured, the reason you're functioning is back is because the medication is doing something that's getting your functioning back. So for example, for me, I take that immunosuppressive drug serolimus. I take three pills every day. And I don't know if anyone's ever going to be able to stop me from taking those three pills because uh, this month marks 10 years that I've been in remission. And I, I feel great. I mean, I feel the way I did before I ever got sick. So I, I can promise you I'm going to want to keep taking those three pills for as long as I'm able to. I also get an infusion um, once every couple of months. And I'm probably going to keep taking that infusion every couple of months, um, uh, you know, for as long as I'm feeling well. Um, and so, you know, some people will say, Hey, I want a cure where I can be off these medications. For me, I just want to be functionally cured, um, where I can live a full life. I can have full functioning. Um, even if it means that I take three pills a day. I'm glad that you clarified that because I think a lot of people, uh, mix those two together. And at the end of the day, the goal is like you said, is to be functioning in a, in a healthy way, right. Yeah. And on an everyday basis. So the reason why I ask about the age thing is because you, you see examples of people that are suffering from some sort of, some sort of disease. You know, cancer, is, it's, it's been on the rise. I mean, pretty much everything has been on the rise, which is kind of sad. But, you know, in the case of cancer that is closer to me, you get into these situations where you see patients, they get diagnosed with a particular type of cancer, and then they go in through this protocol, and the protocol does keep them alive, does keep them from degrading, but they're not fully functional in the sense that yeah. once a month they have setbacks, you know, or every every so often they don't feel well. So it seems to me like, you know, what you're trying to do is, is do better than that because I, I know people like this. Yeah. I know people that, you know, have been on, on cancer medication for 10 years, right? And they still, they're alive, which obviously is a blessing. Obviously, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you to, for everybody who did all the work to make that happen. Yeah. But they've, ne they've never really been able to go back to the way things were before, right? Yes. And that's a big difference, especially today in the age of longevity and aging and everybody's talking about all these different things. Is the idea that through your work is going to be one way for us to get to that goal of, you know, it's not just about staying alive, but to be functionally and happily alive. 
Absolutely. I think that the goal for all of us that are in medical research, whatever disease we study, our absolute goal should be to return that person to the state of health they were in before the disease and to have that person return to an outlook about their life that's the same as it was before their disease, that they can live a full functional life, um, again, before as they did before their diagnosis, look to the future as though they did before their diagnosis. And so that's got to be the goal. And I think part of every cure, I mean, I, I will tell you that our, real, our, our primary focus early on is all of the diseases that don't have a single approved therapy. There are literally thousands of diseases that don't have a single treatment. And so that's where we want to focus first or the ones where there's nothing. But I will tell you that we are certainly also interested in those diseases where there might be a treatment, but it's not good enough. And so you can imagine that if you get really good, and, and I think our artificial intelligence algorithms are already getting very good, really good at matching drugs to diseases that don't have any treatments, you can imagine that same algorithm can get very good at finding drugs that may be similar to the drugs that are already being used for that disease, but superior in X, Y, or Z reasons. So you can start, start not just finding drugs for diseases that don't have any treatments, but also finding better drugs for diseases that do have treatments, but they're just not good enough right now. And that's the kind of, um, it's sometimes described as like a learning healthcare system or a learning R&D system where we want to continue to get better and better and not just be satisfied, okay, there's an approved drug. Because to your point, sometimes an approved drug, it extends life in some way. It does something positive. That's why I got an approval. But it's, in many cases, not enough. And so that's where I want us through every cure to make sure, and the reason we called it every cure is that we think that every FDA-approved drug should be utilized for every disease possible. Um, and we want every patient to benefit fully from the drugs that are within reach. And so if that means connecting another drug to the disease at hand, um, that's what we need to do. So let's touch on, on that point a little bit more. There's the whole world of side effects, right? And I, I know personally people who have been diagnosed with, you know, whatever, who won't go through that because what's available to treat that disease comes with a whole list of side effects, right? In the work yes. that you're doing, is that part of the equation as, you, as you're training these algorithms to actually look at the side effects and try to figure out why they're happening and hopefully get rid of them? That's exactly right. And, and even if it's not to get rid of the side effects, it's to avoid that drug and to look for a drug that doesn't have as many side effects, right? And so um, there certainly are cases where um, – you know, you, you treat a side effect as, you know, drug treats disease, causes side effect, you treat the side effect with another drug and you sort of, that you run into this like circular thing, right? Where you're treating side effects and now the treatments are causing even more side effects. Um, but we really use side effect data to say, let's pick the drugs that have the least side effects. So that way we're not treating side effects, but really use that to prioritize. You know, if two drugs look similar in terms of how likely they are to help a disease, you know, which of those two is going to have a better side effect profile? Excellent. Well, we are, <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. I have like all kinds of more questions, but the time is running out. So if you were to leave the audience with three thoughts on, on every cure and I'm chasing the cure. So what would you leave the audience with as far as three things that you want them to remember and to be curious about on the work that you're doing? 
Sure. So I think the first one is how important it is to turn our hope into action. So for years, I had hoped that someone would find a treatment that could save my life. And then I realized that if I was going to hope for it, I needed to start taking action. So I built this organization. I started doing research. I got involved in doing things. I wasn't just sort of waiting and hoping. I was taking action the same way that you're doing things to improve your health. You're making lifestyle changes. Let's not just wait and hope and see what happens. Let's let's turn our hope in action. That, that's number one. Um, the second one is that I had my last rights read to me when I was 25 years old. And uh, of course, never thought that I would be here 13 years later. But what I learned in that process um, is the incredible power of feeling like I'm living in a sense of what I call overtime. So from the moment I've had my last rights read to me, I'm in time that I'm not supposed to have. You know, it's, it's extra time, not supposed to be here. And that can be scary. But it can actually also be very clarifying because it can help you to say, hey, look, this is extra time. I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm going to use this extra time to the best of my ability. I'm going to make every single second count. So I hope everyone listening will, you know, will utilize this mentality of making every second count. And the third one is related to, to, to how this has been such a team effort. So, so my book is called Chasing My Cure, but we really should have called it Chasing Our Cures, plural, because it's been such a team effort. If it was me working on my own, we would have made like one one thousandth of a percentage of the progress. But it's because of this really impressive team effort that we've made progress. So, you know, just to summarize, it's turn your hope into action. It's make the most of every second. And then it's rely and lean on the people that you can to lock your arms when you take on challenging problems. Thank you for, for those words. I could not resonate anymore. I know you're doing great work. I was, I was so happy when I heard your story. That's the same year that President Clinton was here. And I, and I understand from right. for some of the work, that uh, some of the stuff that I've seen online that he actually heard your talk too. And uh and I connected with you as a result of that. Yep. And uh, I hope nothing but good things come from that. David, thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, it, is, it is truly good work. And I hope that we can share a meal here in Nona when you're here in a few weeks. I love that. I'd love that. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been so fun. I, re I remember meeting you at the Lake Node Impact Forum a couple of years ago. I remember hanging out in, in the lobby uh, at the Wave Hotel and um, just really loving hearing about your story, your background, your family and medicine. And, uh, and now it's just it's really cool to reconnect with us. Thank you so much, David. We'll be talking soon. Yeah.